Welcome back to Up Next for Patient Safety. This is our third podcast in a series, and I'm your host, Karen Feinstein. I'm president and CEO of the Jewish Healthcare Foundation and its three operating arms, which includes the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about healthcare payment and how changing the way we pay for care could make our care safer. If you think this is a boring topic, you're wrong, and our speakers will make it even more lively. In fact, new approaches to how we pay hospitals, doctors, and health systems could guarantee that safety will become a top priority in the near future. The big question we address today is, how do we get hospitals, health systems, and doctor's offices to want to adopt greater safety protections? Even if they're automated, the new protections, and they're easy to adopt and install, simple to execute, there's still some cost and some disruption. And a National Patient Safety Board, even if established, will issue recommendations. It doesn't set regulations. It doesn't enforce new solutions. Uh, So consider how little incentive there is right now for investing in safer and even the safest care possible if you're a health system. Uh, There's a cost to getting practices in hospitals to change the way they provide care, to install new technologies and apply advanced analytics so they can prevent accidents before they even happen. What about other industries? Why do airlines or nuclear power plants or even the manufacturers of their equipment invest in safety? Because think about this, if they're unsafe, people won't buy their services. They won't ride on their planes or their trains. Um, or a federal agency could close their facilities. In effect, they'd go out of business. But as we all know, hospitals and health systems don't go out of business. They don't get shut down because of errors and their patients and purchasers can't choose the safest system often because the information isn't even available on safety records. And when it is available, it can be confusing or contradictory from different sources. Much of the information we need isn't even available to patients and their families. And here's a surprise. Healthcare systems get paid the same amount if they're excellent or just comfortably mediocre or even less than average on safety. Uh, But that could be about to change, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's look more closely at one magic bullet that might inspire those who provide health services to become decidedly more safe. I'm talking about something called value-based purchasing as the next new thing. It's on the table for the government and Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurers, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, United, other private insurers. So we're going to take an exploration, a journey into value-based purchasing today. I have two terrific guests to do that, Nancy Gento and Jessica Brooks. Nancy is the executive director of the Washington Health Alliance, a multi-stakeholder nonprofit that offers objective reporting of progress on measures of healthcare quality, safety, and value. It's also a trusted forum for important conversations about health system improvement. Nancy joined the Alliance in September of 2014, and she's looked um, in, in some depth at the organization's strategic direction, its legislative agenda, its continued expansion across the state, and publication of new reports. Nancy's organization is well known for its credibility and substance. 
Jessica, my friend from uh, our community, is president and CEO of the Pittsburgh Business Group on Health and the CEO and founder of the U.S. Health Desk. The Pittsburgh Business Group on Health is an employer-led nonprofit coalition and represents all kinds of organizations and business segments, public and private employers, government, education, and others, like the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. The Health Desk is a real-time solution for patients who are facing harm um, or have had harm done to them from what they believe could be discrimination, lack of consideration, and inadequate treatment. So now to our guests. Nancy, can you tell us some of the measures that you use at WHA to assess the safety of health providers? In other words, how do we measure safety? So Karen, thank you. A pleasure to be with you and Jessica today. And what I would share is the closest we come to measuring patient safety today is through a series of reports we call our first do no harm reports. These reports actually calculate healthcare waste. Think about that as overuse. We use the term waste and overuse interchangeably. And they look at common test procedures and treatments that have been identified by physicians themselves such as through the Choosing Wisely program and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force to be overuse and potentially harmful. When we think about this harm, Karen, we think that exposing a patient to care that shouldn't have happened in the first place because it's not evidence-based means that a patient can be harmed physically, emotionally, or financially. And I just thought we should, for the audience, consider an instance in which a woman has cervical cancer screenings too often. Suppose that in one of those screenings, she gets a false positive. So then she's required to take more time off work, away from her family, to get a biopsy and additional consultations. More medical care on top of a screen that should not have happened in the first place. The emotional toll while she waits final results is horrifying. She, and depending on the level of her health plan deductible and co-pays, she may be financially harmed through this experience as well. And on a more global basis, sure, unnecessary care is adding to the unaffordability of health care. And that's what my organization strives to do, reporting on performance measurement and wasteful care at the medical group level and other hospital level and other units of analysis in our state. So, Nancy, while I have you, could you do an important task? Could you help explain what is value-based purchasing um, and how could our insurers use the measures you have to pay for safety? Great question, Karen, and, and a, a real challenge to be concise about. So uh, what I would say is I think of value in healthcare as the combination of three elements, cost, quality, and patient experience. When we talk about this, we're talking about high-quality care at a fair price that includes an exceptional patient experience. So when an entity is participating in value-based purchasing, they're agreeing to a set of health principles, important things to their patient population or employee or member population, and the measures that accompany those. And then they're setting up mechanisms through contract that reward the provider and sometimes the provider and the payer in a shared risk arrangement for care delivery. So under a value-based purchasing arrangement, provider gets paid for keeping people healthy, 
And it's so constructed, you know, for keeping an entire population healthy, such as an entire employee's population healthy. That's the beauty of value-based purchasing, focusing on health and high-quality care. So this is really different, right, from the fee-for-service system, which means right now, the more services um, that a hospital provides or practice, the more money they make. So is it possible you would even make more money if you made more mistakes and kept people in a bed longer? Yes, Karen, absolutely possible. And you have it just right. You know, the current fee-for-service system pays for each element of care. And as a provider, the more I do surgeries, tests, treatments, visits, the more I get paid. And really the incentive is to deliver lots of units of care. I'm really not incentive as a provider under that system for patients' overall health or that of the community. And I'm also not incentive for coordinating care on a patient's behalf. Oh, Nancy, thank you. Um, pretty hard to give a quick overview. So Jessica, just from your perspective, do you predict that both public, like Medicare and Medicaid, and private commercial insurers are considering value-based payment? Well, yes, I know for sure private insurers um, are considering value-based payment because as leading an employer coalition, we consider, consider ourselves the insurer, the payer more so, not the insurer, but the payer. And this value is exceptional. It's more than a conversation um, at the coalition level. I've been leading the coalition for seven and a half years. We've been talking about value and the definitions and trying to get it, get more clarity and make sure that the voice of employers and what we believe is value is at the table, which includes productivity, presenteeism, you know, caregiver burden, quality of life, um, you know, adjusted measures when we're deciding whether to cover a drug or not. Uh, from a government perspective, we seem to lag Medicare um, and, and CMS when it comes to adopting value-based strategies. Um, oftentimes, we find that there are certain uh, services covered under their, the Medicaid and Medicare plans or fully insured plans than they are on commercial uh, populations. And um, I do believe that's due to the government's focus on value um, in a different way and contracting and having that ability to contract on one major uh, level, although employers uh, cover more lives uh, collectively than the government does, we don't contract together. So it's more difficult to get that done, um, especially when you're working with uh, local health plans. So Jessica, I know something you're passionate about is keeping people like me, patients safe when they go for care. Talk to me from your perspective. I know it's part of what you work on at Health Desk as well. How will value-based purchasing change the behavior of hospitals and health systems, even doctors' practices? Yeah, I think Nancy really highlighted in her formula uh, patient experience. And that's really ultimately what Health Desk was designed to account for, is hearing um, and understanding what, what value or quality means to a patient. And no one knows more than a patient when they're not really being treated well, when they aren't being heard or when they their care is delayed, for example, in, in, in the way of a patient experience or, um, you know, when they feel like their pain isn't being um, 
you know, treated appropriately. That's all um, included in patient experience. And we know that different patients, um, sometimes based on race and other factors, maybe age sometimes and other demographics may um, influence how outcomes occur or how care is delivered. Uh, So, you know, in a value-based payment arrangement, we would be driving and paying for and incentivizing based on outcomes, based on patient experience, um, which would definitely make a big difference in just sending someone for a test or um, providing a procedure. Um, Bitside manner would count. Um, you know, uh, having accounting for whether or not um, any errors or eliminating errors um, would count if we had more of an outcomes-based payment arrangement or, or at least and or um, accountability um, at the top um, through levels of compensation, but also culture um, that expects high quality, safe care for every single patient. It will make a major difference. I know um, going back to my Psych 101 course that people do respond to incentives. So as a patient, I would like to know that the person caring for me is being measured the, the, the care I'm getting and the outcomes of care are being measured and that they're getting rewarded when they're excellent. So I, I hear what you say. So Nancy, here's a question. This all makes so much sense. Why has it taken so long to make it widespread? Uh, right now, pay- payers, you know, particularly our insurers, we know they have the data that tells them who's naughty and nice, who's providing the safest care, the most reliably best practice care at a reasonable cost. So we know they have those data. What does it take? Um, what's it going to take for these data to become actionable? So, so Karen, you know, I think we need to start with the consumers here. I, I think that it is pretty widespread that consumers of care are are not as perhaps um, well-educated as you are or think in the same terms that you do when they visit a provider. They don't understand there's tremendous variation in care quality and, and cost. So I think it starts, first of all, with educating folks that the door you work through really matters and to have more and more inquiring the way you are about how does my provider stack up. I know when I go to my physician, I, for example, ask about the cost of care very directly. They don't often know, but I think if enough of us ask that it will become more the norm that this is just something that folks, our providers respond to us with. I agree with you that health insurers acknowledge they have these data. They know they have these data. What we hear in our market is that there are products that are available to allow purchasers to select a program that pays for value, but there's simply not enough uptake by purchasers. They're not willing to step up to the plate. They're not willing to go at risk for potentially upsetting their employee population to make a change in benefits. And, you know, my organization, and I know your deep commitment uh, to this as well, is all about transparency and making information available The vast majority of the performance measurement work the Alliance does is publicly available. And I think that's the first step, right? Making this information available, but data in and of itself will sit on a shelf unless you actively engage stakeholder groups to drive the work to action. And that's really our focus. So what insights do we gain from the information? What do we recommend? 
how can we by, be, by bringing folks together around the table, drive the work to action in a way that improves health for citizens in our state? I, and I know when I'm negotiating for health insurance for our employees, I should know better, right? I should ask for data on safety and quality. That should be part of the negotiation. But I admit, often I'm just talking about price and, you know, can you keep the increase as low as possible and not asking about things that are really important to my employees? Um, so, Jessica, I'm guessing, and in fact, I think I know that very few health professionals get any instruction in their schools of health sciences in safety science or human factors engineering, lean quality improvement methods, organizational behavior, systems theory, all the things you need to understand how to make systems safe. How will health systems get their doctors, nurses, and other personnel to change their behavior if they haven't even been trained or exposed to how you can make systems much safer? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh you know, I might be a millionaire after I answer this question if I get it right. But, uh, you know, I honestly believe that the patient and the purchaser, the employer purchaser can play a really big role in transforming and turning this ship around. Um, dollars do do count. Um, they hold the insurer accountable, the insurer will work to ensure education and, and um, accountability on the provider level side as well. And I think patients um, have activated and have the literacy that's necessary. If we can educate patients, then they will be educating providers by asking the, the critical questions, by holding off on a surgery when they're told that that's what they need, with that they, they may not need, um, and they don't rush to it, and they don't rush to schedule it. I do think the consult mass consolidation does make it a little bit more difficult when your providers are also owned by the hospital, that's owned by the insurer, or vice versa, um, and then you're incentivized to keep feeding the system, essentially. Your primary care refers you to their buddy who's in the same system, and orthopedics and orthopedics um, bills, the insurance company that's up, up a few floors from them. I do think there's some level of, of clear complexity as a result of mass consolidation. However, I do think with the Consolidated Appropriations Act that's um, holding uh, insurers, brokers, other um, uh, folks in the supply chain more accountable to transparency. I think that's going to help on the cost and pricing um, perspective. I do think initiatives like RAND, the RAND study, that's um, you know, one of our sister coalitions actually, Indiana, uh, along with RAND, has spearheaded for the last four years now. This is the fourth report that's reporting hospital pricing across state. Um, by hospital. Uh, that is something that we need more and more purchasers, employer purchasers to participate in and support and provide claims data to, to continue to get that level of transparency. But we have that now. We didn't have that, um, you know, three years ago. And now we have a level of insight on how to compare our populations in this marketplace versus Michigan or versus Colorado, um, which driving up costs. Those are tools that are now not only the employer disposal, then they're now at the purchaser um, hands as well. Um, I do think that's going to happen. And then there's a lot of innovators like surge quality and um, different second opinion medical providers 
that are now um, being leveraged and purchased through employers and even some health plans to ensure that patients get to the highest quality provider. Providers don't want to lose that money. So as more and more of these programs get adopted, they're going to try to keep that market share. And what's going to keep that patient is quality and outcomes and that being reported. Um, so I don't underestimate the transparency and these vendors that are actually driving towards centers of excellence. Um, and employers, large employers like Walmart, as you know, are driving these programs, Boeing. Um, I think this is all coming and shifting us in the right direction. It's taking longer than we want, but whether regardless of training, they're going to be held accountable to outcomes. So, so that training is going to have to come from leadership. And now that the consolidation is here, there can be one leader that says, this is what has to happen in our system. So that is one benefit that should come out of, of the mass consolidation. Let us hope, Jessica, because we know we can't turn it back. There's no way turning this back. So you've teed this up well for my next question to Nancy. Um, Seattle has some very big national and global companies, some of whom are part of your alliance. Um, although if your weather keeps heating up, some of them may want to come to Pennsylvania. But anyway, <laughs> where drought is not even um, a thought. So. Uh, you have some very big companies. Have any of them experimented with value-based purchasing? And how have these experiments gone? Are there any evaluations that might suggest that this new payment method um, would improve safety, outcomes of care, and even maybe lower the overall cost? You're right, Karen. We enjoy support from many wonderful purchasers in this state. And I'm going to share uh, high-level results from two of them. Um, in our state, both the Washington State Healthcare Authority and the Boeing Company are real leaders in paying for value. Uh, the Healthcare Authority, the Washington State Healthcare Authority, is the largest purchaser in our state. And they buy coverage for Medicaid insured as well as public employees. Huge purchaser in our state. They have been working on value based payment arrangements for many years and actually created something called a roadmap to value based payment. In the most recent report they issued in 2019, they're reporting that over 50% of their contracts are value-based. So that means they have embedded in their contracts metrics by which they are measuring patient quality, uh, safety, uh, et cetera. They aspire to have 90% of the contracts value-based by the end of this year. So that is a huge accomplishment. The Boeing company, Jessica mentioned them as a real leader across our nation, has had accountable care organization contracts in place in the state of Washington for many years. And in these kind of contracts, they're contracting directly with providers bypassing health plans and are very focused on the types of quality and safety metrics they include in their contracts as well. So I know that both of these large purchasers track patient satisfaction and experience. They report very positive results. Uh, I'm not privy to cost saving facts, so I can't comment on the overall cost of care, but knowing these two organizations, I think they're pushing pretty hard on that element of value as well. Well, I know Jessica mentioned centers of excellence and employer centers of excellence. I love them. And from what I know about uh, the centers that do exist. And there are more and more of them now as more health systems seek that designation for certain procedures that people actually got much less care, fewer surgeries, less medication, less inter, um, intensive um, diagnostics. So 
you know, that in some ways makes healthcare safer. So Jessica, tell us though, the road to what some people call tear and steer, which um, you can you can define for us, um, is it's paved with good intentions, but it can be rocky with big potholes. We're known for potholes here in Pittsburgh. We, we sure are. Jessica, you want to talk about your experience? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, yes, I have pretty much um, some very direct experience with tearing and staring in this marketplace. And uh, there was no secret that we've, the, the whole country has transformed and we've had a lot of different changes in different markets, some more um, fast paced than others, some more disruptive than others. Um, but tearing and staring is one of those strategies that we really, um, our many of our members here in Western PA started to consider um, and were implementing and did implement and around, around 2014, 2015, when we had major, major disruption and concern around access um, to certain facilities when we had a, a big, big dispute between our largest insurer and our largest healthcare provider. And what we introduced was quality uh, measures um, into the marketplace. We introduced independent third-party um, vendors who provided quality insights that employers could make decisions based on objective information as to who they would steer um, at their employees to. And they began to create plan designs that actually incentivize that. So zero out-of-pocket costs if you went to the hospital that had the highest quality scores within the marketplace. Um, and then they were able to look at that from a variety of uh, measures, certain type of surgical outcomes, um, and any way that they were interested based on our utilization that they needed to slice. Um, and then they would put those with the highest quality scores in the, um, the best tier. And those employees would not have to pay anything out of pocket or very little out of pocket. Well, uh, we had a major, major uh, uh arbitration and a binding of contracts that essentially for at least this 10-year period, I think we're in year three of it, um, employers are no longer allowed to steer and tear, um, which makes it more difficult for them to be able to incentivize based on the quality data that they have people to go to the higher quality providers. Um, so, and, and I think employers in, in a way have some level of accountability in this. You know, we were we were drinking the Kool-Aid of just narrowing the network for costs. There was a cost play for so long, which as you heard from Nancy, that's not what value all encompasses. It's not just cost. And in fact, um, one of the largest um, purchasers who provided those steering and tearing plan designs was led by quality and they saved um, millions and millions of dollars based on that. So they didn't lead by cost. They led by quality, which ultimately saved them a lot of money. But when we think about traditional narrow networks, it's a cost play that we're sold as purchasers and we've bought into that. Um, and so, you know, some of our purchasing behaviors have had to, we've had some bumps in the road, maybe hit some potholes, but now we understand that quality plays a significant role in it and shouldn't be a lagging indicator into in determining where we send our people for the, the best outcomes and that we pay for bad care. Uh, so that's some of my experience around staring and tearing. Um, staring and tearing for tearing and staring <laughs> sake isn't the answer. However, when leading with quality and informed data, it's centered around that we should be allowed to make those decisions to get people to the safest places possible. I sure wish I could do that with our employees with help if I have the data. Um, 
So for both of you, you know, there's that expression, every cloud has a silver lining. So I'm going to do an injustice and say every ray of sunshine um, may have unintended consequences that aren't good, such as perhaps skin cancer. So um, there are a number of concerns about value-based purchasing. One, if we encourage hiring less expense, it might, it might lead us, it might lead some systems to say, well, I've got to work around this. So I'm going to hire less expensive workers, or I'm just going to invest in cheaper equipment, require everyone to have the same least expensive knee replacement um, device, maybe cut corners on medications. Um, so you know, to keep us alert, to root out any bad practices and harm that could come from a well-intentioned new form of payment, um, what do you think about that we could do to prevent any abuses? You know, so I would just start by Karen picking up where, where Jessica was. You know, she she mentioned a, a purchaser who saved a lot of money by focusing on higher quality care. And I think it's a commonly held notion that higher quality care is more expensive. And I think we start by dispelling that notion. You know, our data dispute the fact, I think that's found in, in other forms as well. You know, it's often that evidence-based care, the very best care for the patient is the most efficient care. And I would just suggest that's where we stay focused. What does the evidence tell us is the best way to care for this patient? And am I working with a system where they are offering that care in a very efficient, well-coordinated way that is, uh, you know, it, it complete with high patient satisfaction and experience? Jessica, do you want to add to that? I don't have, no, actually, I, I don't have much more to add to that. I, I think Nancy hit it on the head. That's the formula. Well, we may need to have... Uh, do some scrutiny, some oversight on the local level, as we have done, by the way, with other managed care um, payment methods, just to make sure that well-intended payment methods aren't in any way um, used as a way for the uh, people who deliver care to not responsibly um, offer that care in the safest, highest quality way. So my final question, you both have um, very interesting alliances of business groups, employers and purchasers. So I'm going to ask you each for one thing that one thing that you would say to employers and purchasers who are listening to our conversation now that they could do right now to help their employees get safer care. So I'm happy to start. Um, one of the things that we've been focused on at the Pittsburgh Business Group One Health uh, that I believe has been largely missing from all of the value conversations um, is uh, equity. And oftentimes when we talk about even value, um, our, our strategies, our plan design, it's still in a relatively homogeneous fashion. Um, as if we, you know, steered and tiered um, our plan design or created different copay structures or included a different primary care program or diabetes program that all of our employees and their families that we cover or treat created equal. And there's significant disparities that exist in our healthcare delivery system. People are treated differently. There's evidence-based information that's not an argument. Um, and um, we need to account for that. 
in a way that we've never done before. So that's one call to action that I think is a requirement of not only employers, but our healthcare delivery systems at the very top to account for their for a lack of cultural competency and a lack of intentionality around being even more deliberate around groups that have um, been um, unjustly uh, treated in our healthcare delivery system. And that's an area that we're definitely focused on um, that I believe have to, has to be a part of this quality conversation and value conversation. And I do think precision medicine will play a big role in helping that, um, taking as much of the human factor uh, out of it where we can, as long as the digital age and our tools um, are designed uh, uh, with the right diversity and inclusiveness at the top so that our systems, um, our AI doesn't automatically uh, discriminate as well. But I do think we have a really good opportunity with precision medicine, second opinion medical, contracting, putting contract language in our RFPs that require um, quality measures and level of transparency, access to our own data so that we can make informed decisions um, and have a, a governance over some of the things that um, we're providing access to. And uh, so there's a lot of actual tangible things we can do, looking at certain conditions and saying, oh, well, this demographic is more likely to get colon cancer. We should do different levels of um, access points to get treatment, right? There, that We can go by disease state. We can go by a lot of different conditions, um, but it takes that, I believe, to uh, really, really create value for every single individual that we're providing care to. You just gave uh, you know a number of really wonderful tactics and things to consider. I I can't top that. I think those are all great ways that employers and purchasers can get engaged. Maybe I would just go to the macro level for a minute to say, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you're interested in this issue, and you have to do something about it. And you have to do something about it with other like-minded individuals so your voice is amplified. I'm really a believer that no one organization, regardless of its size, no matter how big you are, you can't individually drive the market to safety and high-value care. And the secret sauce, the magic sauce in all of this, I believe, is collaboration uh, amongst like-minded individuals to do something that makes a difference. Well, I can't thank you both. Um, it brightens my day. We're having thunderstorms here to be talking to uh, two people who are so dedicated to making healthcare safer and higher quality. Um, as many of you know, um, this is part of a series of podcasts talking about why it could be valuable to have a national patient safety board with autonomous easy to use ways to prevent errors before they happen. So if you're a health system, if you deliver healthcare in any way at the practice level, the skilled nursing facility level, or at the hospital level, um, what an NPSB could do, just like the National Transportation Safety Board, is come up with solutions that make the work simpler on your frontline employees, because a lot of safety issues are identified before they happen. The preconditions of harm are identified using our best analytics and that using our best technologies, corrective actions are put in play before the harm ever occurs. Now, this does happen in almost every other high-risk complex industry, so we know it's doable. 
But we think the key is, you know, that employers really do um, want their their healthcare delivery systems to offer safer care. And I think they're willing to identify it and pay for it. So I thank you both. Um, Anyone who is interested, we do have a coalition um, that is formed of all the key stakeholders that's working on this at the congressional level to get approval for a National Patient Safety Board. We have a website, npsb.org, that you can um, access to hear the first two podcasts. One looked at why did we choose the National Transportation Safety Board as a model? The second looks at the promise of big data and predictive analytics and technology to make healthcare safer, take the burden off the front line, and make this simple for health systems to be as safe as those who use their services want them to be. So thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Jessica. Um, This was a very engaging conversation.